Isn't it a little bit, well, some of you may not find this odd at all. For some of you, this is your first Sunday here ever at, at the, the Vineyard Church in Cardiff. But, um, but for me and James, who have been in this city leading this church for 10 years now, this is the first time that we have been, well, separated, I guess. The Red Sea was parted on Heathfield Road this morning. As, uh, no, as me and my two youngest came down to, to the gate at Cardiff Central and uh, waved goodbye to James and our eldest to go up north. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it feels strange. Some of you might be feeling that it's a bit strange. It's a good. I keep telling myself, like, Lord, this is what you asked us to do, and we're stepping into it, and it's change, isn't it? I'm not the greatest change lover. But um, I love a good change that I know the reason for it. So I know the reason for this, and I'm, I'm stepping into it with joy because this is a new chapter for us as a church as we really start to, uh, to pray even more for this city and beyond. So we are, James and I, <laughs> uh, have written one talk. Yes. So, so this is a talk that, um, for any of you who have ever done nothing together as a spouse couple... It's not always that straightforward, is it? Because <laughs> you have different ways of working, and I'm a future planner, and I like to get things done, and James loves to leave things to the last minute, and enjoy, he enjoys the fear. So for those of you who know him, when he writes a talk, he generally gets up at like five in the morning, and like sits there and scurries away writing it, and I literally could not think of anything more terrifying in my entire life. So I've been like, as long as we write it, four weeks before, I'll be fine. And he's like, what? I can't even think what I'm having for dinner later. So um, anyway, same talk, different locations. Um, the one dangerous thing for you guys is that I don't have James on the front go row going like this. <laughs> and, and, no! <laughs> and, oh! <laughs> So uh, I have been given strict instructions to keep it brief and not say anything too outrageous. Um, so uh, if I do, please don't tell him. <laughs> anyway, we are really excited this morning to be starting a new series as part of this new chapter of the church called Gracefield Community, which some of you will know is one of our values here at Cardiff Vineyard, or the Vineyard Church in Cardiff. And just to state, just before we start going into this, this is not a nice idea to explore, but this is a vision that we felt that God gave us as the people that God wants us to be as a church. We're going to start exploring over the next few weeks, what does it look like to be a graceful community? What does it feel like? And how do we grow in this as a church? A few years ago, we had this, this is the sort of email that you just long to receive as a church. Uh, we had this email sent into the church office, which I hope will just give you a little bit of an insight into what we hope it should feel like for somebody to come into this community. So I think it's going to come up behind me. If it doesn't, don't worry, I'm going to read it out. Hi, I found myself in your evening service tonight, and it was the last place I expected to be, so it came as somewhat of a surprise. I just wanted to drip your, drop you a quick line and say thank you. Everyone was so welcoming, and in addition to the lovely smiling drink service who sorted me out with a cup of tea, four separate people made the effort to speak to me, ask me my name, and genuinely showed an interest in me. They all asked me how I was and took time to listen to me. I felt so welcome and so safe. I was invited to share what I wanted to about my story and my journey, but none of them pressed me and backed off when I seemed fragile. 
I shared some of my fears without any sense of judgment or condemnation at all and felt from each of them that they actually gave a... <laughs> Notice how I stopped? This is me growing. <laughs> Honestly, I can't tell you how grateful I am to have walked into your community tonight. It was the first time I dared to go to church in about five years and I came away feeling much less traumatized than I was afraid I might. If you were a restaurant and I was a mystery customer, you would all be getting a staff night out and a special certificate to put on the wall. Unfortunately, you are not a restaurant and the church has not resorted to sending in mystery worshippers to get ratings yet, as far as I'm aware. So hopefully the warm, fuzzy feelings that come from knowing you all did well will be enough. Anyway, thank you. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Um, hopefully more of those to come. Essentially, what I hope that we take away from this is that it is grace-filled people who create grace-filled communities. But let's be honest, talking about gr the concept of grace is much easier, isn't it, than actually being graceful or grace-filled. The uncomfortable truth is that we Christians in our society are not generally known for being graceful. If you talk to somebody who seems miles away from coming to God, many people tend to admire Jesus, but often can't stand his followers. It's true, isn't it? When I first came to university without any faith whatsoever, I had no intention of following Jesus and certainly no plans whatsoever to make it into church. In fact, being truthful, I thought Christians were boring, judgmental, rigid, hypocritical, and just annoyingly self-righteous. None of you would have wanted to have met me back then. <laughs> Poor James, he did. Bumped into me, gave him a grilling. But let me just elaborate. The reason that I, I thought that and felt that is, you see, I didn't think that Christians were any worse than anyone else. Who was I to judge? I just thought that they thought that they were better than the rest of us, or at least pretended to be. And it was this perceived double standard that I loathed. And I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling this. There's probably some of a few of you in this room right now who feel the same way. And all I can say is, well done for being here. Maybe come and talk to me later. Um, however, Jesus does, doesn't he, have this intriguing and mysteriously attractive pull on many people. But it's Christians that seem to create this repelling force. And nowadays, now that I'm one of them, that really bothers me. And I'm sure it bothers many of you as well. You see, I just can't keep this joyous, life-giving, loneliness-beating freedom to myself. I want it for everyone else. My heart aches for others to have this. That's why we started this church. And that's why we're in this new chapter as this church, starting today of having more expressions of this church around the city. Just going back to um, the religious people, us, I guess. This perceived um, religious being barriers to people coming to God is not only of a problem of our time. Rewinding 2,000 years ago, in Jesus' day, People felt this magnetic attraction towards Jesus, but were repelled and put off by the re condemning religious leaders of their time called the Pharisees. In fact, Luke tells us all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. So to discredit him, the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees, called Jesus a glutton, a drunk, and a friend of sinners, mainly because Jesus had this enormous life-giving impact on so many. They couldn't explain it and it didn't fit into their behavior-orientated view of a relationship with God. Maybe the reason that people today are drawn to Jesus, but not to his followers, is because many Christians are not like Jesus in that regard. 
And ultimately, that's because that we don't really see what Jesus sees in other people. We Christians can subtly become pharisaical without even realizing it. It's frightening. And every now and then, even I catch myself as someone who hated that so much, judging someone for their behavior rather than seeing their heart before I recognize what's happening and give myself a good talking to. Like, how could you, Jen? For goodness sake. So if this is the last thing that we want to be, how do we continue to grow more like Jesus while avoiding drifting into Pharisee? Well, I guess firstly, we have to recognize the danger is there and have a good, honest look at ourselves. So here's a good test. Ultimately, the impact that we have on the people around us will tell us if we're more like Jesus or more like the Pharisees. Everyone who is fully trained, this is Luke 6, verse 40, everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher, Jesus says. And again, you will know them by their fruit. So during the course of this series, we're going to study through the Gospels and some of the uh, epistles, looking at the encounters that Jesus had with all sorts of people. What did Jesus do and convey that contrasted so sharply with the Pharisees? How did he treat people? What was he feeling or thinking? What was his attitude? What did he say? What did he do? We're going to try and see people through the eyes of Jesus. And as we learn from Jesus' encounters, I want you to wrestle with this question just as we're studying this. Am I more like Jesus or more like a Pharisee to the people around me? The answer may not be as black and white as you think. I'm going to just put up, put up a picture now. Oh, I'm not going to. These guys, wonderful media people, are going to. Um, it's a picture of Rembrandt's masterpiece, The Return of the Prodigal Son. So Rembrandt was this 17th century Dutch artist, very well known, um, who throughout his life was quite taken by the story of the return of the prodigal son. And apparently he did lots of um, pictures and sketches of this particular story throughout his artistic career. But this one, this is the final masterpiece that you can see there, um, is probably the most famous um, and the most um, valuable. And it depicts, as you can see, that moving scene in Jesus' parable where, filled with compassion, the father ran towards his wayward son. The son, some of you will know this story, but just very, very simply to recap, the son had squanders, squandered his inheritance with loose living. Bit of a eyebrow-raising phrase, if ever there was. Um, but he came back to his dad um, when all the money had run out and he was desperate and broken, came begging for mercy, and his father embraced him. Rather than being angry or annoyed at him for having taken all of his inheritance and almost saying, you know, I wish you were dead so I could have your money instead, the far and then like blowing it all with his loose living, he, uh, he embraces him, the father embraces him, and doesn't say, you stupid little boy, you know, how could you do that? Like, out of my house, I don't want to see you. The father doesn't, does he? He embraces him and says, my son was dead but is now alive. He was lost but now he's found. And Jesus describes this beautiful moving stories in answer to the religious people at the time's complaint that he welcomes sinners. And the painting is now worth a fortune. Now, just imagine one day if you were to visit the museum where this painting, this amazing painting, this valuable painting was housed, but then you're walking back at the end of your visit to the museum and you're walking past this skip and you just notice in the skip this, um, the Rembrandt's masterpiece, but it's hardly recognizable. It's covered in dirt, stained, and the canvas has been torn. 
You wouldn't recognize it at all, except you notice the famous hand of the father on the ragged son's back. How would you treat the painting? Like rubbish? It's covered in mud, it's stained and it's torn. Is it still worthless? Do you treat it like it's worthless? Or would you treat it like a nearly priceless masterpiece that needs to be handled with care and restored? I'm guessing that all of us in this room could see past the mud and even the damage to recognize the immense value inherent in this one-of-a-kind work of art, simply because it was created by Rembrandt's own hand. We wouldn't try and clean it up ourselves, would we? We'd bring it to a master who would delicately restore it to its original condition. So why do we struggle to treat people like the immensely valuable, one-of-a-kind masterpiece God created with his own hand? As we look at the life and interactions of Jesus with very sin-stained, muddied people, it becomes evident that Jesus could see something worth dying in all people he encountered throughout history. Jesus could see past the mud to the masterpiece that God wanted to restore. What do you see when you encounter people whose lives are far from Jesus? What do you see when you look in the mirror? Do you see the mud? Or do you see the masterpiece that God wants to restore? What you focus on determines who you become and the impact that you have on those around you. The Pharisees primarily focused on the mud of sin that covered the lives who were far from God. They prided themselves in mud, in mud avoidance. They fixated on mud. They tried to clean the mud off of others with their own dirt. And it didn't work then, and it doesn't work now. Jesus was different. Jesus demonstrated a spiritual vision that he wants to impart to us, to see the masterpiece that he sees in us, and to restore us to become the people whose hearts reflect what God sees, even under the most muddied life. Let's just look at this through Ephesians 4, uh, 2, 4 to 7. It's coming up again behind me. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God's raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable richness of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Notice what it says. We were all dead spiritually damaged, sin-stained, muddied paintings left in the skip. None of us brought ourselves back to life spiritually, nor can we clean ourselves up and restore ourselves into what God intended without God's help. But by his grace, his undeserved favor and loving kindness offered freely, we can be restored. And notice the words describing God's heart. He has great love for you. For those utterly lost and broken and vulnerable, even for those who look like they've got it all together. As we will see, love, kindness and mercy flowed liberally from Jesus' life, but the Pharisees' wells ran dry when it came to mercy. Paul continues in this passage, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
So here in this passage, the word translated masterpiece or workmanship or handiwork is the Greek word poema, from which we get the word poem. I really hope I pronounced that right. I've never done Greek. I ran it past James, who did a few lectures of Greek. Supposed to have done a whole year. (laughs) Did a few lectures. I can vouch for that. So poem. And what Paul is saying is that we are this work of art. Our lives are poetic. We are created and beautiful. We're the work of a master artist. Do you realize that you are all God's masterpiece? His work of art. By grace, you've been saved. A person living in Jesus' time would hear the Greek word again, sozo. I think that's correct, particularly with the accent, sozo. I'm dyslexic. It actually says S-O-D-Z-O, but I'm, I'm told that the, de- the D is uh, silent. Anyway, sozo, sozo. Anyway, it doesn't really matter how it's pronounced, because you don't speak Greek either, I'm sure many of you. But um, what it actually means is saved. And people in, the, in Jesus' day who spoke Greek would know uh, or think of it being carried to safety or made whole or restored, restored back to the original condition. So God saves us. He restores us to right relationship with himself. He makes us secure by adopting us as his own children. And he begins a lifelong process to restore the original work of art that he imagined before we were even born. In fact, God sees it already completed. Grace tells you that all God needs is your faith, giving yourself back in trust to God, your creator, giving him permission to renovate and restore you and bring to life his masterpiece in you. Do you see yourself, like God does, as a living work of art, that he's wanting to restore to full value. Do you see others that way? Because what we see matters. What we see about ourselves matters, and what we see in others matters. So often, what we need is new lenses in our spiritual spectacles. But more often than not, we should have gone to Specsavers. Um, <laughs> love those adverts, particularly the one with the Zumba. That's my favorite. I don't wear glasses, but I will one day, I'm sure, and I'm going to go to Specsavers. Anyway, your life was meant to be a tool of restoration in the hands of the master artist. And our vision as a church is to restore this city, to bring to life the parts and the people that have been dead and broken, and to restore them back to the fullness through the love of Jesus. But we must become more like Jesus than the Pharisees. And that starts with the right attitude of heart, the right lenses in our spiritual specs. Jesus must have pictured what he created people to be and the vision of how he felt about them. And I'm sure he encountered those, the people that he encountered and picked up on his attitude towards them. And that's probably why so many muddied people flocked to him. In his eyes, they saw a glimmer of hope for who they were meant to be. And I'm convinced, I know that people intuitively pick up on our attitudes towards them. Are we for them or are we really against some of them? Do we truly believe that they have immense value and worth to God or are we secretly disgusted, bothered, shocked, judgmental, wanting to fix them quickly? I've become to believe that many Christians repel those who don't follow Jesus because we don't share God's heart for them. Why? 
If we have a gospel of mud management, we focus only on the mud. A gospel of restoration sees past the mud to the vision of the masterpiece. Which gospel we hold, the mud management or the gospel of restoration, will actually affect how we feel about ourselves and other muddy people. Let's just go back to this analogy of the Rembrandt, the, the amazing picture. When master fine art restorers come to restore a work of art, they don't just get a cloth, dip it in some soapy water, and give the picture a good scrub, job done. If there's, I know there's some artists in this room, actually. I'm sure even just the thought of that is making you wince with horror. Um, so this, uh, I think there's a picture going to come up. This is a picture of... Uh, Restorers, they're called fine art restorers, and how they restore these incredible, just exquisite pieces of art uh, that are, no, you know, they're historical, they will never be painted again. So it's got to be something that takes fine, fine crafting. They painstakingly take their time, they wear special spectacles that show them the intricate detail of the painting, and then they remove very slowly one piece of dirt at a time with the right process so as not to destroy the original painting underneath. Then they replace and renew the original colours and the definition that make this painting stand out to be marvelled at. This sort of process takes time, specific spectacles, devotion, patience, and immense care. If we picture God's goal for our lives as mud management, we will quickly judge and push away muddied people, or try and scrape the mud off ourselves while ruining the masterpiece underneath, or just maybe avoid them so that we don't get muddied ourselves. But this was not Jesus' approach. It does little good to call ourselves Jesus if followers of Jesus, if our lives and our, our influence don't reflect Jesus' life. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. So God fully intends your life to have the same influence on the world around you as Jesus did. In Ephesians 2 verse 10, it says, we are God's workmanship created. It's this workmanship again, isn't it? Handiwork, workmanship. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God prepared you in advance for a unique purpose. Only he knows. A masterful picture of a life well lived that truly brings purpose, fulfillment, and eternal beauty to you and the people around you, just like Jesus did. All he needs is faith. You growing to trust his leadership more and more in each day of your life. And I believe that when we truly understand this, the overwhelming grace that is shown to us, that changes everything. It changes our hearts, it changes our attitudes, it changes our relationships, it changes our communities, it changes our city. In the vineyard, if you've been around for any length of time, you might have heard this phrase called, come as you are, don't stay as you are. And what it means is that anybody is welcome to come into our community, no matter what they believe or who they are or what they've done. Someone invites them and we hope that they sense something of God's presence. We want them to taste and see that the Lord is good. But we also want them, as we do for ourselves, to be restored to fullness as I started, I mentioned earlier, I, I, uh, I had no intention of going to church, but 
This is part of God's journey for my life. I did. I got invited to go to church, none other than James Rankin. And uh, <laughs> so he was the first inviter in my life. And he invited me to church. And I just um, I remember how that was for me. Because I, was, I found myself in this room just surrounded by people singing songs to someone I didn't even know existed. A lot of them had their eyes closed. The other lot looked as if they were at a gig in a festival. And I was just staring at them thinking, this is all a little bit strange. Um, and I couldn't sing any of the songs, A, because I didn't really know any of the songs, and I didn't know what I believed. So I did, you know, in all authenticity, I couldn't really be singing to somebody I didn't think was real. Um, but having said that, I was attracted. There was something about that whole morning. I didn't get it. It wasn't familiar. I didn't necessarily believe what everyone felt it, um, what everyone else felt or thought. Um, but there was something about being in that environment that, mor that morning that just, how can I describe it? It was a little bit like, you know when you've been outside in the cold, it's starting to get a bit nippy, isn't it, around the edges? Um, I put my coat on, dug out the hats and scarves this week. I was like, ooh, winter's on the way. Um, but uh, we're starting to feel a little bit of winter nipping at our toes at the moment, aren't we? And um, you know when you've been outside for a long time, you're, you're either watching your kids playing on the swings or you're watching a sporting event or you're at something, you're maybe at a bonfire event and you're a little bit far away from the fire. And you're outside, and, and gradually over time, your fingers and your toes and your nose start to get a bit cold, and people start doing this, don't they? And rubbing their fingers together and blowing, blowing up their noses. Not blowing up their noses, blowing on their noses with their hands to warm them up. But as time goes on, it, the, the cold starts to go a bit deeper. It's like it sort of starts to get into your bones a bit as time goes on. If you're from Yorkshire, you'd say, oh, I were killed, cold, I were, I were killed? Oh, no. Oh, I were chilled to the core. <laughs> With that sort of wavering voice. Um, <laughs> you've got to have it. Um, but you've almost got used to it. You know, if you spend a long time outside, we were at this amazing little festival event at Southern Down last night, and it started off being quite warm, and by about two hours in, we were really, really quite nippy. And, um, but it's like that, sort of that you get used to the cold and you don't realise how cold you've got until you get, get into a nice warm room, maybe that's been lit by a, an open fire. I mean, this is the sort of thing that you, you really look forward to about winter, isn't it? Sort of snuggling next to a fire with a nice hot cup of tea. Um, and you, as you get in to the warmth of that fire, that sort of that peace and that warmth... And start, it starts to awaken your body and your mind. It's amazing, isn't it, how when you're cold, it even slows your mind down and actually um, your mood. I get really grumpy when I'm cold. But when you, when you get next to that fire, you don't realise quite how cold you've got until you come into the warmth again. And once you're huddled next to that fire, ooh, you never want to leave again, do you, and go back out inside into the cold. And I hope what you've got from that long-winded analogy is that that's how it felt for me coming to church. I didn't, um, didn't realise how cold I'd got until I got, until I sensed the heat of the fire and felt myself getting warmed up, body, mind and soul. And not only that, when I first came to church, I was overwhelmed by the people who I had expected to keep me on the edge and make me feel like I didn't belong, but instead welcomed me in ushered me to the closest spot by the fire, like I always belong there. I wasn't expecting that. 
People should be attracted to the community in the way that we love one another, shouldn't they? They should be welcomed and accepted and loved. They should be embraced into the warmth of the glowing grace of Jesus. And through this warmth, feel their minds, their bodies and their souls awaken again. They may well never have encountered Jesus before or really know anything about, them, about him. They might think, I don't know why I'm here like that lady did or how I got here. We shouldn't expect to people to have it all sorted before they come. But every word we speak, we need to know, has the power to give a little life to people, like in that email she talks about, or to destroy a little bit of their spirit. Words are incredibly subtle, aren't they? Like little jellyfish stings. You don't necessarily feel it when the tentacles brush against your skin, but the, the pain and the tingling lasts a long time afterwards and makes you nervous to go back into the sea again. We as Christians have the ability to offer acceptance, love and hope. We also have the ability to judge, condemn and wound. The Apostle Paul says that we are to accept one another. What exactly do we do when we accept someone? It's a remarkable action, difficult to define yet unmistakable when we personally experience it. Because to accept people is to be for them. We're, welcome, we're welcoming them next to us at the fire, rather than worrying that if the mud will rub off on our clothes if we stand too close to them. We make space for them to join us around the fire, rather than crowding around, worried that if we stretch the circle wide enough, we'll get less warmth for ourselves and our friends. It is to recognize that it is a very good thing that these people are alive, and to long for the best for them. It does not, of course, mean to approve of everything they do. It means to continue to want the best for them, no matter what they do. Because Jesus' fireplace is big enough for all those who need warming up. As I finish this morning, I just want to remind ourselves, just as a slight recap, that it is grace-filled people who create grace-filled communities. Grace is the thing that changes everything. As we glimpse the depth of God's grace for us, we begin to view the masterpiece waiting to be restored to fullness in us and in those around us. We receive new spiritual spectacles. Grace-filled community means trying to see people through the eyes of Jesus. What do you see when you look in the mirror or at others? Do you see the mud or do you see the masterpiece that God wants to restore? Because what we focus on determines who we become and the impact on those people around us. So as we step as a church into this new chapter, our hope is that as we are captivated by Jesus and his immense grace, we will be compelled by his love to become more like the graceful people, making up the graceful community that he is beckoning us to come.